This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration is offering agencies a glimpse of what the future of work could look like. Starting in early November, GSA will open up its shared workspaces in three cities, as well as its Future of Work headquarters laboratory. Robin Carnahan is the administrator of GSA. She tells executive editor Jason Miller at the 2022 ELC conference in Hershey, Pennsylvania, about how GSA is helping agencies envision how their employees will work differently in the coming years. We know that the workplace of today is different than what it was uh, prior to COVID, but not all offices are set up to work in that new way, right? And they're not always convenient to where people live. And one of the problems uh, that we observe as we talk to people about going back into offices is they've really appreciated the chance not to have to spend hours of their lives commuting and that they think they're more efficient in the work that they're providing when they don't have to do that. So providing folks other places to go to work, maybe closer to where they live, maybe set up and configured in ways that are more conducive to how people work in person today is, I think, really important. But we need to learn about that. We need to learn how people use these spaces and what their needs are. So we have an IDIQ that has been set up for just over a year with private co-working spaces to be able to provide these offerings to federal employees. But we want to shine a light on that. So on November 14th, is going to be a week where teams can show up, work for free in these private co-working spaces and just See what, see what they think of it. See what the tools are that really make a difference for them uh, that might be effective going forward. So we're excited about that. We expect to learn a lot from that. And then we'll take those learnings and figure out what to do next. This is something that's going across the country, but in, in selected cities. Maybe tell us which cities so folks who are listening can yep. say, okay, I'll tell my team in that city to go look out for this. Yeah, we're starting it just in three cities. It's uh, going to be in Washington metro area, Denver, and San Francisco as, as the pilot. So uh, we expect to learn a lot, and uh, if, if it works out, we'll be expanding it to other places. A lot of us who have been around for a while will think back to the days of, of the telework offices, right, where you could... Oh, I'm from Agency X. I'll go to this telework center in, in City Y that's near my house, so I don't have to go all the way in. And, and those had a decent life, maybe 15 years or so, but eventually they fizzled out. Is this trying to take that experience from, again... Sounds early, like you've been early, a lot around this longer than I have, Early Jason. 90s into the early okay. 2000s until they finally were closed down. Is that, is that, have, you, has your, have your folks brought this concept back to you? Say, well, we did try this, but we tried it this way versus working with the private sector. Well, I, to be honest, I did not know this was tried in the 90s, but well done on <laughs> informing me uh, on that. <laughs> but what we know is the world has changed a lot since right. then, right? So that is the important thing is all of what we need to be doing is focusing on how do we empower our workforce to do their best work. That's what we want to do. And we know that the world has changed. We know that workplace flexibility is a thing that's important for our teams and both to retain talent and recruit new talent. And so it's a thing that's very serious for all of us. Every agency is dealing with it as well as the private sector. So this is not a big mystery anywhere. What I think the difference now is, as well, than it was you know, 15, 20 years ago, is back then laptops were these big bricks. Mm-hmm. Not everybody had them. You were lucky if you had one. I was right. lucky if I had one. And, and now we all have them, and we're all, we all have the tools. So I think it's, it's maybe back then it was a, 
a tools before the time. Now it's the time with the tools. And is that what you're hearing maybe when you talk to agency, whether it's deputy secretaries and secretaries about the future of work, what they're interested in? Is that, is that part of the discussion? What we have learned in the last couple of years is that people can work effectively from lots of different places. We have learned that. Some agencies took a little longer to get stood up than others. GSA was able to move really quickly because we'd been doing a lot of uh, telework before. So we know that. We also know that there is an important role for offices, but it's going to look different than it's looked in the past. Uh, we also know that agencies are thinking more about sharing space, which you've been around for a long time, hasn't always been a thing on people's minds, but now it is uh, because they want to have an effective, optimized footprint for the space that they have. And we also know that all of this is going to look a little bit different depending on each agency. So it's not going to be a cookie cutter. So we're going to have to look at the mission need and then come up with a solution. So lots we've learned, but lots more to go. I'm glad you brought up the office space. I had an interesting exchange with an agency recently who uh, I think there was a little bit of rumor mill that got played that said, oh, well, they're closing. They're, they're going to send everybody home from headquarters. And I looked into it and it was not true. Uh, that's why I won't mention the agency. But they are consolidating office space. How often are you having that conversation with secretaries and deputy secretaries and others now about con that consolidation or trying to move people into headquarters or at least reconfigure headquarters? Uh, what's, what are those conversations like? Yeah, look, this is a conversation every agency is having because most people have been out of offices working elsewhere uh, for, you know, a year and a half. Um, again, depending on the mission, some people need to be in, some people don't need to be in. And this is not only about uh, space, which is the thing we think about all of the time, but it's also about talent and how do you retain and recruit talent and workplace flexibility at this moment is a way to do that. One of the things that we're very focused on uh, with our agency partners is what is the optimized footprint that you're going to need going forward, knowing that we don't have all the answers right now, but for now, what would that look like? And so agencies are putting together their five-year space plans right now, and I think those are expected by the end of the year. So our team's working really, really closely across all of the, all of the, the cabinet agencies um, to, uh, to, to work that out. GSA uh, over the past few years has ha have talked about this idea of we have this great opportunity because forty percent or some something 40%. like that. Forty hey, percent. I that. think I know what you're going to say. Uh, of of the our leases, leases are yes, expiring exactly. in the next four years. So, so how much? I'm glad you got the message on that. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about how that kind of plays into these footprint plans. So like, are you expecting the no the amount of lease space to drop? Are you expecting agencies to come back to GSA and be like, we have you know, pick your number, 100,000 square feet. Now we want 50,000 square feet. Like, what do you expect? So there, there are two different pieces to this. One is, what do we do with lease space? Uh, we have a lot of leases. 40% are going to be up uh, for renewal in the next four years. That's an opportunity to shrink that. But there are lots of examples of where it doesn't make sense to have a federally owned building. You know, every, every SBA office, every county has a USDA office. There are lots of small spaces where leases in particular make a lot of sense. But where, where we can consolidate uh, in office buildings, that like makes sense. We should consolidate into federally owned space. The other thing we're spending a lot of time thinking about is our federal space. What are the buildings that we really think we need to have in our portfolio and want to keep and want to invest in and make them places where people want to come and work? And which are ones we need to dispose of. And so that is a very, the level of seriousness of that conversation right now is very real. Let me 
talk about the other thing that GSA is doing related to this office space issue is having some products within 18F with headquarters at GSA that folks can come in and, oh, let me see how that works. If yep. I move this chair here and this desk here, mm -hmm. that's another pilot effort or at least another proving ground effort. Maybe talk a little bit about what that is and why, what agencies should keep in mind as, as you guys open this up for others to come see. Yeah, we're calling it the Workplace Innovation Lab and it's at 1800F and Lots of different vendors and suppliers of office configurations and materials and, and furniture have come in and basically set up test spaces in different parts of our uh, facility. And we're going to open that up to agencies to be able to bring their teams in and work in those spaces and see what they like and see what they don't like. And they can test different ones out. We know that there's going to be an important role for offices. We also know it's going to have to look different than it's looked in the past because people are just using office space in different ways and for collaboration spaces and other things. And so to be able to have people kind of try before you buy on that is pretty smart. And again, we'll see what people say. Part of what I'm trying to encourage is the culture of experimentation to understand we're living in some uncertain times right now, but we don't have to be hamstrung by that. We can use it as an opportunity to see what new products can serve our customers, our agency partner customers, well, and just begin to test those out in lightweight ways. So I'm really excited about that. Robin Carnahan is the administrator of the General Services Administration. You can find more of Jason's coverage of the ELC conference at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits 
helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did... You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, and I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those too and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes, and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations right, on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, 
Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, 
there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.